Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with three very special guests, and we are going to be talking about consumer. First, I would like everybody to introduce themselves and your history in the consumer space. Uh, Rebecca, perhaps we could start with you. Sure. I'm Rebecca Caden. I'm a partner at Union Square Ventures. Uh, We're a New York-based, thesis-driven venture capital firm. Before that, I spent about five and a half years at Mavron, which is a consumer-only firm. And so most of my investing history is in consumer really across a couple of different things, brands and retail platforms, consumer wellness, education, and financial services, which are kind of big buckets of consumer spend that excite me. Cool. Uh, hey, everyone. My name is Nikhil Vasu-Trivedi. I'm a managing director at Shasta Ventures. Joined the firm in 2012, uh, around the same time Rebecca joined Maveron. Exactly. So we've kind of grown up in the venture business together. And similar to Rebecca, have spent my time in the last seven years in consumer, uh, everything from consumer products companies to financial technology businesses to some stuff in consumer health. And uh, one of my portfolio companies is the Farmer's Dog. Really excited to have Jonathan here. Yeah, Jonathan, can you introduce yourself in the Farmer's Dog? Sure. Yeah, I'm Jonathan Regev, the CEO at the Farmer's Dog, uh, which is a direct-to-consumer fresh pet food company. And my first foray into consumer was helping launch some e-commerce companies in, in Asia and then moved to New York and started the Farmer's Dog here. Cool. And Nikhil, why don't you tell the story of how you found the Farmer's Dog and what, uh, what attracted you so much to it? Sure. Well, I got to meet Jonathan and Brett, the, the founders, early on, I think maybe three or four months before we ended up leading the company's Series A. And we'd long been interested in the pet category at Shasta, have felt that the that the category is just a phenomenal consumer category to invest in. And what we really liked about the farmer's dog is that they're creating a whole new category within pet, this idea of fresh pet food, something that people haven't been able to really consume in the traditional retail stores, uh, uniquely suited to online and subscription, and then loved the passion that Jonathan and his co-founder Brett had for the business. And so all of those things led us to end up leading the Series A round. Yeah, awesome. Let's zoom out and then we'll come back into specific categories. Rebecca, you've been doing consumer since 2012, we just established. So first, how have you seen it evolve in, this, in terms of how you've approached consumer investing and how do you foresee it evolving in the future? Where are we right now? Sure. So I think, you know, it's evolved both on the consumer behavior side and then the fundamental kind of platforms and infrastructure that permit consumer brands to grow. On the behavior side, what we've seen is a real appetite and and kind of explosion around desire for the new, right? So a movement away from comfort with legacy and entrenched brands to a desire for brands that stand for things and are value-based, much more personalized, um, where discovery and newness is fun and cool and exciting to really amass customer base, not only early adopters, and related to the platform side, where it's way more accessible than it's ever been. And so, you know, obviously this last decade has been an explosion of Facebook and Instagram and and mass accessibility, where brands can reach customers faster and cheaper really than ever before. And that's 
created a lot of opportunity to go get them um, and not only to make the products, but to sell them in a direct way and to tell that story. And that's been really exciting and it's allowed for a huge amount of innovation and adoption You know, on one hand, I think that customer behavior and that desire for the new is only continuing. We're more eager to explore new things. We're more eager for these brands to stand for something than ever before. But the underlying nature of these platforms where they found us is changing, and it's changing pretty quickly. CACs across the board are rising. The fundamental kind of structures of these platforms are evolving. And so I think the next era is going to be a couple of things. It's going to push brands to really think about long tail acquisition strategy of how to get customers in new ways, capture hearts and minds, including organic ways. And I don't mean, you know, magic fairy dust organic ways. I mean, what are strategic structural ways that get people talking and sharing and connecting? And often that has to do with building more than a transaction, but building an engaged brand post-transaction as well. What's an example of that? So I, I always think about Dia & Co. as an example of that, which is a business I invested in at both Mavron and uh, we recently led the Series C at USV. And so customers transact. They Dia & Co. is a commerce platform for buying plus size clothing. But But these customers wind up feeling a part of something. So not only have they gotten the clothes, which is great, that's functional, they like the style, that's cool, but they also feel connected to the brand. And you can tell that because they're engaged in the Facebook group, right? And in this Facebook group, they talk about their clothes, they share what they bought, They also talk about their weekends and they talk about their job interview and they wind up going on vacation together. Obviously not everyone, but even a small sample. And that you're seeing this engagement that I think is going to be a very powerful piece of brands that are able to leverage acquisition to get a lot of depth from a customer. And who else has figured that out? Is it Glossier? Like, what are other companies? Yeah, I think Glossier has figured it out. I think different, I think, you know, commerce in terms of a transactional product sense is probably too narrow. I think about Duolingo, which is a language learning platform in the USV portfolio. And they have quite a community built around it, kind of micro Facebook groups around people learning Spanish in particular, even people learning German for some reason. And those customers participate, and you can see participate correlates to engagement and longevity on the platform. Feeling a part of something makes us attached and last longer. That behavior hasn't changed. I think one thing I love about consumer is fundamentally how people work, what inspires them, the need for, you know, community and connection, the kind of innate ability to to be curious and desire something are who people are and the platforms and services that they go to change, but those fundamental needs don't. And I love that about consumer investing overall. Right. There was this time where people sort of thought that Warby had sort of created this playbook and that you were just going to do Warby for, for every vertical. Has that time passed? Or is that is that just, it's too crowded, too difficult? There were sort of unique things that made Warby work? Or do you push back on that premise? Or I think, unfortunately, things that seem... Simple silver bullets are usually too good to be true in building long-term businesses. Building direct connections to the customer in more convenient and value-driven ways, yes, I like that part of the Warby playbook. Taking any product and vertically integrating a supply chain, no, I don't, I don't think that's kind of a magic bullet that is, that is all it takes. I think that's often a piece of a puzzle, but that puzzle winds up being a lot more complex. Yeah. Well, I, I think the other thing is that Part of the Warby playbook is to offer something at a cheaper price to the what the incumbent is offering that product at. But that's not the only way to build a, an amazing direct-to-consumer business. Farmer's Dog is an example of a product that's premium priced. And 
a lot of the pushback that the company got in the early days, I think, from VCs was that this is a premium price product. What we've seen be successful is stuff like Warby, where it's actually cheaper to the consumer. But what Jonathan and team are showing is that you can build a, a very fast-growing, very significant business with a premium price product as well. Jonathan, you, you want to talk about that? Why you went premium instead of you know, cheaper and more mass market? Yeah, I think I think part of the reason is we didn't approach the business from a model perspective, right? So we we didn't look at Warby Parker and say, hey, no one's doing that for dogs. Rather, we looked at other models out there as tools in which we could apply to our business. And the reason we started the business was because we discovered how bad pet food is and going direct to consumer and being a subscription would allow us to create a product that just didn't even exist. So it's not, it wasn't about creating a new distribution channel. It wasn't about necessarily creating a new experience. We, we do those things, but it was mainly about creating an entirely new product that didn't exist before. And so, you know, at some, at some points we are more expensive. Other, at other times we're a little more affordable than options out there. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the price point and how we, how we communicate the price points are just very different. Everything about what we do is very different from the pet food status quo. Yeah. I heard this, uh, this framework from Eric Stromberg of uh, Bedrock, and he was talking about how he's looking to invest in businesses that are hard to get off the ground from years zero to three. If you do, years three to 10, they're sort of easy to scale. And he used Airbnb as, as an example, as opposed to businesses that are easy to get off the ground from years zero to three, but really hard to scale and make defensible years three to 10, and used Allbirds as an example there. So I'm curious how you think about and it sort of goes to your point, but how else do we think about defensibility? How do we think from assessing, you know, what is Airbnb versus what is Allbirds? I don't know if, you know, if Allbirds is specifically fit in that bucket, but how do you think about that framework? I think there are, in an oversimplified way, three kinds of defensibility and the defensibility bleeds into each other, right? So there's structural defensibility. And I think that's a little bit what Eric is talking about, where largely it's associated with network effects, which is something that you know USV feels really strongly about, where the beginning is hard, but when you can build that network and it can kick in, you have structural defensibility, which on one hand creates virality that lets it grow, and on the other makes it harder for others to compete. Those are magical businesses. I totally agree. It's not the only way to grow a business, but it's been a very powerful way to grow a business. At the same time, as the mass platforms have been developed, it's harder and harder to find that, right? The pieces where that's possible get narrower. It's very good when you can find it, but it's it's a limited scope. And we believe that the mass platforms, until they start cracking, which maybe you believe they are now, have been have hindered the ability for new businesses to grow in that way. I don't know that I'd fully put Airbnb in that category, but overall structural defensibility. Um, the second is brand defensibility. And I believe in brand defensibility. I believe in the power of brand. I think Nikhil and I and definitely Jonathan probably all have that in common. That doesn't mean your product doesn't have to live up to it. It doesn't mean you don't want other elements of defensibility. But a brand gains power and authority over time, which is why it's very hard in early days. But at scale, the brand carries weight that can create barriers around it. The third kind is capital defensibility. And that's actually what I think what we've been seeing a lot and is this really interesting piece of the market, right? Which is barriers from outraising your competitors. You have a bigger balance sheet. It's hard to compete, particularly in high logistics market by market yeah. plays. You know, arguably in scooters or in ride sharing, the most money will win. And that is a powerful defensibility. So the question is, which ones of those will last and create the opportunity as you continue yeah. to go? I think I have a somewhat contrarian view on defensibility and consumer right now, which is 
I think it's harder than ever to have a defensible product or business. And therefore, I don't think about it that much at the Series A stage at which we invest because at the end of the day, you know, your your, your capital raising and your pure execution can become or, le- or, or turn into defensibility over time. And it's just hard to predict that at the early stage. Even if you see you know, this product has network effects. Someone else comes along and, and builds something very similar and goes and builds their own network quite quickly. For instance, uh, let's take the daycare marketplace space where you've got companies like Wonder School and WeCare and others that have already raised money, have very similar businesses. You know, yes, there are network effects for each of them, but they're all sort of playing a similar game. They're rolling out something similar to different markets it all becomes about execution for them. And maybe it's capital defensibility at the end of the day that, that leads to one of them being more significant than the others. But maybe it's just pure, it's pure execution. And it's probably both, right? Like I think none of these are exist in bubbles on their own. Yeah. But when, when you're sitting, you know, Series A investors, when you're looking at FarmDog relative to all the other companies in the space, or you're looking at a Wonder School compared to the other companies in the space, what is sort of the non-obvious criteria you're looking for that differentiates which one you pick, assuming you have... Yeah, the pick of the letter. Yeah, well, you know, the thing that I I focus on is number one, the founders. Which is the founding team? If you've got a number of companies that are doing something similar at the Series A stage, which is the fa- which are the founders who could take it all the way and will who who have that mission drive and that deep personal hunger to build something really big? That's, for instance, what I saw in in Jonathan and the Farmers Dog team. Uh, at the Series A versus other companies doing something similar. Another is is back to Rebecca's points on types of defensibility. Sometimes one brand just has an early lead, and you can see that uh, manifest itself in in the word of mouth growth of that of that business versus other uh, versus other competitors. You can see that manifest itself in their presence on Instagram and other social platforms, in the types of content they're creating, and the ways they're speaking to the, the customer. And then it, I think also it's the little things in a lot of businesses that make a big difference. So with the farmer's dog, for instance, one thing I loved about the experience was that they put the name of the dog on the packaging. And that's something that no other company doing this was doing. They very much personalized portions to to the dog based on the dog's breed and weight and age. And the way they were doing those things was just different to what anyone else was doing. And I think those little things add up at the end of the day to an advantage. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I agree with that because I think it's early. It's easy in early days to say like, okay, some, take take Nikhil's example of they put, you know, Jonathan put the name of the dog on the package and, and the personalization. You can say, great, so Ollie will do that too, et cetera. But you have to look at those things as indications of execution. Yeah. So not that that's going to forever be the thing that sets the company apart and makes them win, but it's indicative of how the operating is going to go over time, which is why I think it basically all – winds up coming back to that team question around, you know, you're betting on who can continue to out-execute. Yeah, Jonathan, you want you want to talk about your competition and and your competitive advantage? Yeah, you're a perfect space, right? There are a bunch of people entering. What tell us? Yeah. I mean, I look, we we, we typically don't think too much about defensibility, at least in our fresh food space. I think we've we've made some great choices along the way. Those typically were all focused around the experience that we wanted to create and then around having the right unit economics. 
because part of that capital defensibility is not just how much you raise, but how good are you at investing that, right? And so even the names on the packs, that seems like it was an experience thing, and it was in a bit, but it was it was mainly something that allowed us to have great unit economics because we knew how much any customer had at any given time, so we could run the supply chain a lot leaner. But I, you know, I think for us personally, we're we're in a we're in a space that is what we believe the future of pet food, which is a massive market. And so, you know, when we look at fresh food competitors, we look at them fondly and we hope they, they also do well. We think they're going to be a few companies that do very, very well in the space. And our main competitors are, you know, the blue buffaloes of the world that are selling healthy products to consumers as far as marketing goes, but then providing a very highly processed product. So that, that's how we look at defensibility. I think there's probably also a, a third tier of that structural component, which is easy to start, easy to scale, but then the middle area is very, very difficult. <laughs> and that's something that we're also in. So to cook for 100 dogs was pretty easy. To get from 100 to hundreds of thousands becomes extremely difficult. But once you're past that stage, scaling it up, given how simple our product is and supply chain is pretty simple, becomes easy as well. Yeah. Do you worry in mass that people will realize that cats are better? Gross. <laughs> <laughs> I've never, uh, I've never heard that argument before. It may be, it may be a blind spot, um, but yeah, we'll, we'll we'll do cats as well. Um, it's it, you know they they need healthy food, uh, and and you know a lot of our customers also have cats, so uh, that's certainly in the plan. But yeah, I'm I'm uh, I don't mind either either pet. That's a, that's a great response. So one of the things we were talking about before we turned the mics on was that you know we haven't found you know the biggest consumer companies of the decade or, or some of them are are uh, Instagram and Snap and we haven't had them for we haven't had another one in a long time. Are we going to find another one? Where are we? How, how do you you guys look at it at the Series A side? Well, I think so. When both Rebecca and I started uh, at our venture firms in around 2012, I think both of us and a number of us were running around trying to figure out what's going to be the next Instagram, what's going to be the next Snap. And the reality is that maybe a few vertical social networks like Discord and Class Dojo and Nextdoor or some others have popped up. Uh, maybe some games like Fortnite have become networks in themselves. But it was pretty hard for you as a, as a consumer investor in the last seven years to just play the game of trying to find the next Instagram or Snap and be really successful. And so that's why we all went after, you know, brands and uh, stuff in consumer finance and other areas of consumer spend where we could find exciting opportunities. I still believe we're absolutely going to find, you know, an, another network come along and, and be pervasive like an Instagram, like a Snap. The question is where it, where it will begin, right? Yeah, I mean, I think most of our venture career has been defined by thinking about what businesses, the underlying platforms that had become dominant made possible. Right. And what could scale with this infrastructure underneath it um, that had captured and aggregated so much of our attention. I think, look, those platforms aren't going anywhere. They're not, they're not gone. And there's a, there's a lot of belief that they're still very powerful. But I do think we're starting to see some cracks and we're starting to see people realize that they may be addictive, but not that fulfilling because they're a mile wide and an inch deep in some ways and because the fundamental kind of profiles of ourselves that we put out on them may wind up not being that authentic um, and this 
back to the kind of core human needs may not be as fulfilling to those core human needs over time. But that doesn't make me think we're going to go out and search for another horizontal platform. It makes me think, how are those fundamental platforms going to change to meet this gap that's becoming clear now that we've had a decade to experiment on them? And I think they may look quite different. They may look a lot more vertical. They may actually look more closed in a way that kind of fuels transparency. They may look like brands or transaction platforms or financial services or consumer health where you come in and do something on it, you buy something, you participate in a service, but you stay engaged with it after and connect with others who have done the same, and that becomes a network in itself. That may result in a much more fragmented system of networks versus these mass horizontal platforms that we have now, and that will fundamentally change what's possible to be built on top of them. But I could imagine something where companies own more of a vertical stack versus this horizontal platform that lots of other things are built on top of. If we're doing the same podcast five years from now, what are two companies or, or two ideas or two spaces where there will be a five to $10 billion company built? Like what's, what's a prediction or, or stab that you'll say, I think there's going to be a huge company that figures out digital celebrities or, fi or figures out, I don't know, what, what something that's better than Tinder, I don't know. I think there will be a big company with hyper-local communities on it where people connect online and offline with those communities and that kind of bridge between those is a lot more fluid. But it looks much more tight-knit and localized than it will kind of broad and universal. Um, and, it, and that the models of these platforms will be multifaceted versus all ad-based, um, will look more transactional, will look more complex, which will fuel the ability to do more things on them. And is this, is it closer, next door, is it closer to islands, like mobile messaging app? Or what, location I don't think it's quite like any of right. those, yeah, right? Yeah. I don't, I don't know that I've seen it yet, or maybe I would invest in it. But, um. Like an example could be something like WeWork, which, you know, has a mission around helping people to, to work, to live. And they're basically, they've built out this real estate infrastructure that has led to these local communities now around the world. And there's an offline and online component. And so it's so hard to predict exactly where it happens. I'll give you one example of an area. I, I think there's so much opportunity in, in health and fitness to build, you know, community-based businesses. And I think we'll see some giant companies get built. We've never seen category. a giant fitness company, right? Well, but we're starting to see. So, you know, Peloton will be a public company at some point soon. I think there's a bunch more opportunity in fitness beyond Peloton. Uh, we're investors in a company called Tonal, which is doing something similar to Peloton, but in strength training. And I think we'll just see more and more businesses built there. And similarly in health, as consumers realize that more and more of their money is going towards healthcare because of high deductible health plans, I just think it, it opens up you know, transactional health opportunities, but also sort of network-based businesses as well. Yeah. I want to get into uh, individual spaces and, and categories and, and talk about what you guys have seen and what you're seeing where you're expected to go. And let's first start with with pets. Jonathan, out of, out of all the businesses you could have pursued, or out of all the spaces rather, why did you dig into this space relative to any other space within consumer or e-commerce? E I'd love to say it was some type of genius analysis, but it was, it was really luck. I think, I think pets chose me. We, like we didn't, we didn't choose the timing. We saw a big issue with, 
the status quo. I think there's um, what consumers were thinking they were purchasing was very different from what they actually were. And so I think we, we just got lucky as far as the timing. You know, a lot of growth started happening, a lot of massive acquisitions. All the growth was in our space. And we really just got lucky. <laughs> Rebecca, have you done anything in the pet space or what could you foresee yourself doing there, if anything? Well, I, I haven't personally. Maveron was a significant investor in True Panion, which was a, is a pet insurance company that had a pretty remarkable trajectory and yeah. saw the, you know, I really saw the emotional connectivity between people and their pets. I don't really like pets. No offense, Jonathan. I'm a dog person. <laughs> I've told you that. But <laughs> I remember you coming to my house and being terrified. Oh, yeah, you had of the a dog. scary dog, though. Very large beast of an animal. <laughs> But I love categories that have heavy emotional engagement where people, where value takes a different meaning, right? So there's many areas of our lives where value has a specific meaning, which is how much bang can I get from a dollar? How many rolls of toilet paper can I get for this $10 bill? Pet has a very different kind of definition there where value has a lot of quality associated with it. And that's a great category because you have a lot of runway to, one, get a lot of money out of your customer and really delight them in a way that's meaningful to them. And yeah. so that I like that category for that reason. And I like to send those pet companies to my partners who really care about dogs. Oh, is there a category that either of you guys write off or say, you know what, it's just not the right time right now. Maybe it's the right time five years ago. Or maybe it's the right time five years from now. But I, I just don't see it. It's either too crowded, too early, not big enough. I guess for me... I do take somewhat of a category approach to, to investing. So when you look at some of the, the bets that we've made at Shasta that I've led for us uh, in, in consumer products, for instance, we've got a bet in pet, which is the farmer's dog, a bet in pharmacy, the pill club, a bet in grocery, imperfect produce. Beauty is another category that I wish we had a, a bet in and have probably messed some things up over the years that we should have invested in, but that's a, a great category. And the, the thing that ties them together for me is massive areas of consumer spend, frequent purchasing, you know, and, and real needs for a lot of people, except for, for pet, pet and beauty are, are a little bit different to pharmacy and grocery in that sense. They're a bit more, they're more emotional, uh, as Rebecca but, just but described. High frequency. But, but high frequency, high absolutely. Spend, high frequency. And so I mean, they're also underserved. And underserved. And, and yeah. underserved. Technology was never really applied to either of these areas. Yeah, that's a great point. So then the question is, are there categories that, that I wouldn't do. You know, I've purposely shied away from categories that are just less frequent. And so there's a bunch, frankly, in apparel that are less frequent, part of perhaps. So what, you wouldn't do the all birds or the raw. Yeah. So, so we looked at all birds very closely at the Series A, which Rebecca's firm Mavron ended up doing. And I just couldn't get there on the, the frequency of purchasing, the chance that people could get, get excited about those shoes, but three years later, people weren't excited anymore about them versus with uh, the farmer's dog, for instance, where we have the chance for a decades-long customer relationship. Yeah, I, I look at it as in, in categories that are counterintuitive from a repeat purchase, you have to have a very specific thesis. So when I met Joey and Tim at Allbirds, it was the seed, which I had passed on and then came back and did the A. But what I and the Mavron team had to learn in between was, you know, footwear had this opportunity for accessible priced, comfort-driven shoes were the specific category in footwear that created multi-billion dollar businesses and venture scale returns. That didn't apply to all of footwear, but that's a very specific thesis in that category. And so I think those are 
in some ways more counterintuitive and and more unique than I overall I think you look for these categories that have high repeat have longevity have engagement but you know I would have said the wedding space was a category that yeah. I had dismissed right <laughs> that I was like it takes yeah. up a very specific moment in your life it's high spend but a lot of that spend is inaccessible no and then look what Zola has done in yeah, it they're totally. building an extremely powerful business because they've out executed the, the competition they've taken a wedge and gone horizontal with it and so every you know when you ask that question I thought through all of these things where I was like, mm, you know, G- I don't gifts is gifts, another one. Right. Gifts. Or like babies. Oh, babies. Mm, that hadn't been that good. And then look what Zulily did in babies. And so the reminder, the kind of amazing reminder of getting to be someone who observes people building things is execution is incredible. When you find absurdly talented people who have the ability to convince people before it's obvious to join their mission, to out-execute the competition, to take down incumbents, they can build massive businesses out of surprising categories. And so I try to always kind of keep one kind of, you know, memory on that, even when you want to have these themes. Right. Nikhil, one of the investments you did was TimeHop. And I'm curious if you think, so TimeHop was I don't know, nostalgia-based app? Yeah, still is profitable yeah, yeah, company. Totally. How do you think about that? As it, like, Is that something that will exist in a use case at, and be an independent big company in a different company? How do you, how do you think about yeah, well, you know, things the, like that? I think what's been really difficult for a number of companies like TimeHop is that very quickly the incumbents have copied those features. And this has been true for TimeOp. It's been true for a number of other companies that have have just been caught by Facebook, Instagram, others that have much bigger networks and have copied that feature set and, and really challenged these new entrants as a result. Frankly, that's what's been so hard, I think, in the, in the social network world. I, I know you had a, a bunch of folks uh, like like Greg and Donnie and, and Galput talking about this a couple of weeks ago. It's just been really hard to find that initial wedge and to get to enough initial scale to not get copied by those big incumbents. Now, companies have figured it out. So you look at TikTok and Musical.ly before that, they've had to raise a lot of capital to do it. They've had some distribution advantages in China. And so I think the next one will come around. And I do think nostalgia is one area that, yeah. that there deserves to be, there very much could be a network built. Although tough to compete with Facebook there. And Google Photos. Tough to keep compete with both Facebook and Google Photos. What about dating? I, I know you also, you also did Hitch yep. a few years ago. Could you see yourself doing another, uh, either of you doing another bet in that space? Or Tinder is not Facebook, but Tinder has a big lead. Yeah, the, the thing that I learned with dating and Hinge was acquired by Match is that this is a category that, again, you need a lot of dollars to play with in customer acquisition. The thing about Tinder and Bumble is that they've both had a lot of dollars to acquire customers. And you keep having to acquire customers to keep having liquidity in the dating marketplace. And both of those companies have benefited from having a lot of firepower there. And so it's really hard, again, for a new incumbent to do it. And Match has built a brilliant monopoly. Yeah, I do think it's a category where Match is built a monopoly and also where you struggle with categories where success means churn. Um, it fundamentally is hard to like get the recruiting too. long. Yeah. Yeah. Recruiting may have more dollars in between, but you know, you're operating in a category with dating where the incumbent and the kind of biggest player can release things for free. Yeah. So that's really hard for stuff that is trying to get dollars out of someone in this, in the best case, kind of short period of time. It's a challenging kind of setup, I think. Yeah. The other thing in dating is it's now so mature online. Yeah. 
so much of dating now actually already happens online. There isn't as much, I think, headroom for growth versus in other categories that yeah. there's more. But the, the match, or maybe it's IAC, I don't know, the one that has the monopoly on basically dating apps, is that a model that others should do for different categories or is, is that sort of unique to dating for some reason? I think it will definitely happen in other categories and, and has in the history of the world and will again, you know, I think like everything, we see things unbundle and rebundle again in different kind of waves and cycles. But yeah, almost across categories, owning multiple elements of it creates power. They creates power to scare out new entrants. It creates power to undercut and value. Like it, it gives you a lot of authority in a market. And so, you know, there's a lot of people experimenting with that right now in D2C brands. And if you took a more portfolio approach versus an individual approach, or if you rolled them up, what could you do with that? It's going to look different in, in each category, but I think we probably will see that in, in yeah. different elements. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned Discord earlier. Uh, I, I didn't make the connection, but it seems that gaming has both led the way in, both in live video with, with Twitch and then both, I guess, verticalized vertical communities with Discord. I wonder if that's a, um, a trend that will happen in, uh, in other sort of platform shifts as well. And if, we, if you think you'll see Discord for X or Twitch for X, Take, you know, people trying to, we invest in Glam Cam, trying to Twitch for beauty. They haven't even launched yet super early. Or Discord for, for X. Or is, is just something about gaming that's, that's pretty unique? Well, I think the thing about gaming is with every new technology platform, gaming, people wanting to play, use that platform for entertainment has been one of the first use cases, yeah. right? And so some of the most successful early mobile apps were games. As you, as you pointed out with Twitch and Discord, you know, early new kinds of networks where the yeah. first use case was gaming. Now you've got, Fortnite, for instance, start to do all sorts of really creative things within the game. So I think that's right. I think gaming leads the way in in a, you know a bunch of new technology. I also think it's for really interesting reasons that when you're thinking about which other categories yeah. will map to it, not if other categories will map to it, are worth remembering, which is extremely high frequency, extremely high engagement, and a category where addiction, basically addiction, and a category that has always been something where people are willing to spend. That's, I think, one of the biggest things with gaming when you look at some of these new platforms is, you know, classic entertainment, a big problem that has the kind of web and the innovation on the web has faced is that people aren't used to spending against it right now. Gaming people have always put dollars down against it, which has allowed a lot of opportunity for these networks and platforms to grow. You're seeing this early with VR, things like that. And then you try to translate it to people watching videos or beauty reviews or whatever. And there isn't, it's not obvious that there's the same willingness to spend on it from the first minute. You invest in a class dojo, and really well, obviously. Is um, EdTech, will we see a $10 billion consumer EdTech company? Yes. Uh, what will it look like? You know, USV is a – I think one thing that Shasta and USV have in common, which is fun and hopefully will lead to good co-investing opportunity, is a belief in ed tech even when the market goes up and down on it because – one, because both firms have seen success in it. Um, you know, Duolingo, Quizlet, Skillshare are very meaningful companies to USV. They've seen a tremendous amount of growth, Dojo for Shasta and others, and – you know, I think when you think about fundamental buckets of spend, time spent in our lives that have structurally really not changed despite the massive amount of innovation we've seen over the last several decades, education is pretty close to the top. Classes have become recorded and put online. Technology has built tools to assist in how we learn, but it has 
basically not touched the structural nature of education. And I think it's almost impossible for that to remain when you think about the next 20 years. Yeah, totally agree. And yet it's going to require companies to figure out new business models to build those $10 billion plus businesses. So with Class Dojo, for instance, we just started publicly talking about this, but we've now got a subscription for parents that enables them to be more engaged with their kids, to have activities to do with their kids, to give their kids points, to have fun with their kids as well at home. It's called Beyond School. And that's kind of a new business model in K-12 through education. And that company is figuring it out to go build a massive revenue generating K through 12 education business that no one has seen before. Yeah. In closing, I want to be sensitive to everyone's time. We, we talked a bit about incumbents. This, we're sort of at a point where incumbents are under the greatest scrutiny possible. Facebook, Amazon, you know, Google. Are there gaps in trust that can be filled by startups? And if so, how and where? Well, I, I think it's, I think if you ask yourself how to displace an incumbent, right? I think a very straightforward way to do that is through some type of new, uh, unique feature. I think the difficulty comes where a lot of businesses will try to rely on a unique feature and develop a model around that, where that feature can just be copied. But if the unique feature is derivative of a, of a new model, so if the new feature is more of a result of a new way of thinking and developing a new model, I think that's where businesses become exciting and, and that's where you see larger companies develop and, and displace incumbents. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. I think one where it may still be early in how mass customers think about it, but it's going to grow is around data and privacy and new platforms where users feel a lot more in control of their data and feel less exposed to what platforms may be doing with their data, which largely will likely come from a business model that aligns the customer and the company closer together. Cool. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for coming to the podcast. It's been a great episode. Appreciate it, guys. Yeah, thank you, Jonathan. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.